Welcome to today's edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, with permission of the Worcester News, and recorded on Thursday, the 15th of September, 2022, here at Colin Chance House. I'm Evelyn Brock, editor for this edition. With me to read the articles today is Penny Welford. And our sound engineer is Alex Gwynn. And we are, as usual, ably supported by the admin team led by Carol Hartle. A warm welcome to all our listeners, especially you ones. I do hope you enjoy this week's offering. In addition to news items, you'll hear some useful telephone numbers, birthdays and thought for the week. Nowadays, obituaries are placed following the closing music, so if you wish to hear them, please stay tuned then. Don't forget that recordings are usually available as podcasts, but at present, talking books are not available on memory sticks, but rather on CDs and tape. Also, do let us know your birthdays so that we can greet you specially when the time comes. This service is free to users, but if you would like to make a voluntary donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester WR5 1DA. We do like hearing from you, and a message can be left on our answer phone. That's Worcester 01905 767 766. Or you could add a note to your wallet. If there's ever a problem with any aspect of your receiving our recordings, please use the answer phone on the number I've just given and leave a message to that effect. Before we start to read this evening, well, it has been a week like no other, with a sad, sad loss of our dear Queen, which naturally has dominated the news, and rightly so. And it will be a privilege to read articles on all aspects of this. To ensure our recording covers a span of news for the week, you will hear all the headline articles relating to the death of Queen Elizabeth and about our national loss and responses to that. And then also, Penny and I have chosen one more article on this theme each for you to hear in the general articles we shall read later on. So now... Birthdays for this week. Week ending the 17th of September. On the 21st of September, Leslie Jones. 
and on the 23rd of September, Helen Jones, both next week before the next recording reaches you. So happy birthday to Leslie and to Helen. And now I'll hand over to Penny, who's going to read our thought for the week. The thought this week comes from Luke, chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Some men came, carrying a paralytic on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Thank you, Penny. And now those useful telephone numbers. I've already given you the number for Colin Chance House here. The next one is the police non-emergency number 101. Crime Stoppers 0800 Worcester Hub for Council Matters. Worcester 765765 Worcester Theatres Worcester 611427 Malvern Theatres 01684 892277 Out of Hours Medical Services 111 Samaritans, which is a free phone number 116123 and a recent addition to this list is what used to be called Western Power and now the National Grid 0800-917-7953 for use in the event of a power cut and it's a 24-hour service. They also operate a priority service register and to register, the number is 0800-032-8302, which is free. And the National Grid will provide information in Braille, large print or alternative languages. Well, now we'll start with the headlines for this last week. Friday, September the 9th, a beautiful portrait of our Queen and the headline, Our Gracious Queen, 1926 to 2022. The Queen has died aged 96, Buckingham Palace has confirmed. A statement confirming the news yesterday read... The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Tributes poured in after Buckingham Palace announced the death. The county's MPs were among those paying tribute. Harriet Baldwin said, And finally, after this life, May she attain everlasting joy and felicity 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The county's religious leaders also shared their condolences. Bishop of Worcester John Inge said, I am immensely sad to learn of the death of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I give heartfelt thanks for her life of selfless service, undergirded and enabled by her deep Christian faith. We recommend her to the God in whom she believed, whose love is stronger than death, as we also pray for members of the royal family, particularly our new king. May they be given grace and strength. God save the king. Councillor Richard Udall said, I'm not a monarchist, but I'm in tears tonight. My deepest sympathies with the entire family. The nation is in shock and in deep grief. Things will never be the same again. May she rest in perfect peace. God save the King. Born on April the 21st, 1926, during the reign of her paternal grandfather, King George V, Queen Elizabeth II went on to be Britain's longest reigning monarch. She reached her historic platinum jubilee of 70 years on the throne on February the 6th of this year. As the oldest daughter of King George VI, she became queen following his death in 1952 while she was on a tour of Kenya with her late husband, Prince Philip. Her coronation took place the following year and she was crowned aged 27. She has since become one of the most loved figures around the world, travelling more widely than any other monarch during her extraordinary reign. She is the first British monarch in history to reach her platinum jubilee and plans are in motion for a host of fest were in mo motion for a host of festivities earlier this year to mark the occasion her reign has stretched from the post-war years through a new millennium and into a radically altered 21st century her time on the throne has seen 15 prime ministers from the second world war leader sir winston churchill to Liz Truss. She is survived by her four children, Charles, Anne, the Princess Royal, Prince Andrew, Duke of York, and Prince Edward, Earl of Wessex. Penny. And the headline for the weekend edition features um, tributes from the city. A City Grieves. The public pays tribute to the Queen's 70 years of service. The Mayor leads tributes from city to the monarch. Following the death of the Queen, the Mayor of Worcester has paid tribute. The Mayor, Councillor Adrian Gregson, said, The councillors and officers of Worcester City Council are deeply saddened at the news of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. The people of Worcester remember with great fondness her several visits to the city, most recently in 2012, when she attended a reception at the Guildhall and officially opened a new library and history centre, 
which is treasured by local people. I have always been struck by her unwavering devotion to duty alongside the commitment and insight she brought to every task she undertook. Our thoughts are with the royal family at this time. Books of condolence have been opened across the city following the death of the Queen. You can pay your respects to Queen Elizabeth at the Guildhall in Worcester High Street until September the 20th. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II passed away surrounded by her family on Thursday, September the 8th at her residence in Balmoral. Ten days of mourning have now been declared across the UK in her memory. The Book of Condolence will be open in the Guildhall from 9am to 7pm today, that's September the 9th, to give people the opportunity to pay their respects and open again from 9 till 5pm on Saturday and 10 to 5pm on Sunday. You can then pay tribute at the Guildhall between 9am and 6pm throughout the following week. 9am to 4pm on Saturday, September the 17th, 10am to 3pm on Sunday, September the 18th, and 9am to 6pm on Monday, September the 19th. The Union flag at the Guildhall has been lowered to half-mast and the building is being illuminated in purple at night during the period of national mourning. And the bells ring out to remember. A sombre hush descended on the city before the bells of Worcester Cathedral rang out for the Queen 96 times, one for each year of her life. All yesterday morning, people laid flowers at the war memorial as Worcester united in mourning for the only monarch most of us have ever known. Meanwhile, books of condolence were signed at Worcester Cathedral, the Hive and the City's Guildhall by those who wished to record, for posterity, the mark the Queen had left on their own lives and the yawning gap left by her death. As the Borden bell chimed, eyes turned skyward towards the Cathedral Tower. Even those who had not arrived specifically to witness the tribute paused and stopped as still as statues as if they had all fallen at precisely the same moment under the same spell. Many spoke of the inspirational example Her Majesty had set, some fighting back tears as they signed the Book of Condolence, others lighting candles in her memory. They spoke not as if they had merely lost a monarch, but a member of their own family. Elizabeth II, the longest-serving monarch in the British history, reigned for 70 years. She died peacefully at Balmoral on Thursday. Her death was announced at 6.30pm that evening as the crown now passes to her son, King Charles III. Samantha Hilling, 54, of Purdiswell, Worcester, said, She was a nan, and I lost my nan and my dad to Covid last year. The Queen has been there all my life, and so prominent in it. Thelma Willis, 66, of Warnden, Worcester, signed the Book of Condolence at the Cathedral. Thank you isn't enough. It's just not enough, she said. 
She came into the city centre especially to sign the book. Ali Buckle, 74, of Farnham in Surrey, lit a candle for Her Majesty. The Queen was a true and faithful servant to the end, she said, fighting back tears. Angela Moole, 64, of Thames Drive, Droitwich, laid flowers for the Queen and signed the book of condolence. She kissed her hand and placed it tenderly on the bouquet she had laid. Mrs Moore said, She meant a great deal. She was an amazing lady, what she did for us. I've always watched everything she had done, her life. She coped with everything. She inspired me throughout my life. She was an amazing mum, nan and great nan. She had good times and bad times as well. She showed us how to muddle through them. We're going to be very lost without her. And now for Monday, September the 12th. Witnesses to history. Crowds come together to share in big moment. And there is an almost full page picture of crowds outside Worcester's Guildhall to watch the pro proclamation of our new monarch, King Charles III. An historic ceremony to declare that the former Prince of Wales had become King Charles III was held in Worcester. Worcestershire's proclamation took place at the Guildhall on Worcester's High Street yesterday and saw the High Sheriff of Worcestershire, Andrew Manning Cox, read out the words proclaiming Charles as king. The event began with music playing as people gathered on the street to view the occasion. The Lord Lieutenant of Worcestershire, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Holcroft, CVO OBE, gave the opening remarks on the steps of the Guildhall. He welcomed the community to the proclamation and introduced the High Sheriff of Worcestershire, the Chairman of the County Council, Councillor Chris Rogers, and the Bishop of Worcester, the Right Reverend Dr John Inge. The High Sheriff of Worcestershire said, The proclamation of the new sovereign is a very old tradition, which can be traced back over centuries, and it is my humble duty to continue that tradition here today. The ceremony does not create a new king, but is simply an announcement of the accession which took place immediately upon the death of the reigning monarch on Thursday last. The High Sheriff's speech was concluded with the words, Charles III, by the grace of God and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of his other realms and territories, King, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to whom we do acknowledge all faith and obedience with humble affection. The High Sheriff was dramatically forced to pause his speech as a member of the crowd collapsed. The brief pause enabled paramedics to assist a woman in the crowd before the event was quickly resumed. He then declared, God save the king, which everyone present repeated. 
the Bishop of Worcester stepped forward to say a prayer. After that prayer, the police band played one verse of the national anthem which everyone present sang. For many people, their first time singing God Save the King. The crowd gave three cheers for the new king. Each mayor and, and chairman of councils from across Worcestershire were then given scrolls with details of the proclamation. These included the chairman of Bromsgrove District Council, the chairman of Malvern District Council, the mayor of Redditch Borough Council, the mayor of Worcester City Council, the chairman of Witchaven District Council and the chairman of Wire Forest District Council. The mayors and chairman then followed the Lord Lieutenant and High Sheriff in procession as the principal guest departed. The event was immediately followed by a similar ceremony held by Worcester City Council. The front page of the newspaper for Tuesday, September the 13th, there's a feature of the war memorial outside the cathedral and a lovely picture of the Queen. The headline is A Rock in all of our lives, grief over Queen and welcome for Charles III. Tributes. Flowers have been laid by members of the public in Worcester, with many thanking Queen Elizabeth II for her constant presence in their lives, and one mourner lit literally depicting the longest-serving British sovereign as a rock. Touching tributes have been left outside Worcester Cathedral in memory of Queen Elizabeth II. People have left flowers, cards and gifts with moving words throughout the weekend. Five-year-old Harry wrote a card for the Queen that he left with some flowers. He said, Thank you for being our Queen. We will miss you. Love, Harry and Mummy. Someone has left a flag from the recent Jubilee with Queen Elizabeth's picture over their flowers and another person painted a rock with the image of the late Queen and added the words, Thank you, ma'am. Another mourner left a drawing of a horse with their tribute. They said, Rest in peace, Your Majesty. Love, Laura and Scarlet. Another tribute read, To Majesty the Queen. We love you and will miss you. You're the greatest queen. Love you. Olivia, Luke, Shelley and Spencer Southall. An anonymous tribute read, May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Yet another tribute said, To our queen, thank you. Rest in peace. Steve and George Dyson. Another read, with deepest sympathy, ma'am, you have been a constant in my life and you will be sadly missed. Someone else wrote a letter that said, we love you, Queen Elizabeth, thank you. A family left a tribute that said, thank you, ma'am, for all your service. May you rest in eternal peace with your beloved husband and family. Love, Freeman Chicks. Another tribute said, Rest in peace, Your Majesty. With grateful thanks from the Hill family, our best blooms 
for you. Another card read, Our sincerest condolences, Your Majesty. Tributes began to be left at the War Memorial shortly after the Queen's death was announced on Thursday, September the 8th. Now, Wednesday, September the 14th. Plans face demolition. State of building threatens food proposal for supermarket. And the subheading, Rethink could see new food hall axed. A bid to convert a crumbling former supermarket into a food hall could now be scrapped under new plans to demolish the building. The old co-op building in Angel Street in Worcester was supposed to be transformed into a new food hall and offices as part of multi-million pound regeneration plans by Worcester City Council. But now bosses are flirting with the idea of demolishing the eyesore building, which has been empty since 2016, because of its crumbling concrete and limited life. The council's managing director, David Blake, warned the former supermarket was in a poor condition and, with its budget continuing to rise, the food hall plan could be scrapped altogether. It's fair to say now that we are looking again at the building because of the condition, he told the Council's Policy and Resources Committee at a meeting in the Guildhall on September the 8th. It's not in good condition. The concrete surveys that we have done show that it does have a limited life. It may be actually better that we knock the building down and do something else with it. If we go down a different route in terms of demolition of the building rather than refurbishment, there are other grants available to us. That's speculative, I know. But just to give some reassurance that we are looking at alternative options, both in terms of how we bring the full building back into use and how we access alternative funding streams. Mr Blake also said that he had questioned the need for two food halls in the city centre with the High Street's landmark former Debenham store set to reopen as a new venue at some point in the future. We are still hoping that the ex-Debenhams building opens one day. We'll see it's been a long time, he said, but we don't think there's enough demand in the city for two of that type of retail unit so we would have to rethink the ground floor. Bringing a new food hall to Angel Place was included in the council's successful £18 million bid to the government, which also includes plans to build a new arts venue at the neighbouring Scala Theatre. A plan to convert the space into a Victorian-style gin bar was rejected by Worcester City Council's planning committee in 2018. Moving on to Thursday, the headline reads, Bridge Price Grows by £7 million. It features the revised cost of the new river crossing, which has almost doubled. 
cost of the new bridge soars close to £16 million. The cost of building a new bridge across the city's River Severn has almost doubled, it has been revealed. Worcestershire County Council said the budget for building the new Keepax walking and cycling bridge from Gallivelt Park in Worcester has rocketed to almost £16 million, up from around £9 million two years ago. The council blamed inflation and rising costs for the spiralling budget but says it will still be able to afford the bridge. More than several million has been set already set aside to pay for the bridge, including £1 million from the government, and the Cabinet meets at County Hall next Thursday to discuss the Council's plans on how it will stump up the remaining £11 million. Councillor Mark Bayliss, Cabinet Member for Economy, Infrastructure and Skills, said the estimated cost to construct Keepax Bridge in 2019 did not include inflation, nor did it include some additional works, such as improvements to Horsford Road or the ramp down to the Seven Way. Since 2019, there has been significant inflation in the construction industry due to a number of factors, including major increases in fuel, energy, aggregates and steel costs, which have been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. There is a very detailed process required to award a major construction contract of this type. The time it has taken to award this contract has been driven by the process and has not been affected by the cost of the scheme. The Council has said it can pay for the bridge, if it moves around some of the money in its existing budgets and makes big cuts, including important funds for maintaining roads and infrastructure to its own capital spending. The Council said it would move around at least £5 million from its current capital budget to pay for the bulk of the hike. The Council said it would cut more than £570,000 from its road maintenance budget, which deals with resurfacing and refurbishing, as well as street lights and drainage, and almost £1.8 million from its strategic infrastructure maintenance budget, which could include solar farms, railway stations and waste disposal centres. Worcester City Council has agreed to hand over more than £3 million to help pay for the bridge. Cabinet papers warn the bridge could face more delays and its budget could swell even further if the Council's plans are not backed now, but if if approved, expects the work to finally start in October. It has been almost a year since the Council received planning permission for the bridge, but little work so far has been carried out. A decision was expected to be made last July, but concerned councillors delayed a decision until they were reassured the bridge would link with walking and cycling routes. The hold-up led worried council council bosses to share grave concerns over the future of the bridge 
fearing the authority could lose out on millions of pounds of government funding. The committee met again in September, with the council left breathing a huge sigh of relief when the plan was eventually ushered through. Thank you, Penny. And now a sports article. This is about Worcester Warriors, which, as you may know, has been experiencing grave financial difficulties lately. Things appear to have come to a head, and this is a combination of two articles in the Worcester News about this subject. So first, from September the 9th, administration may not be best for club. Worcester Warriors' Steve Diamond has warned of the dangers of administration, saying new owners would be best for the club ahead of the Premiership opener with London Irish. The director of rugby was speaking at the first press conference of the season ahead of Worcester's Gallagher Premiership opener at London Irish. The game and the Premiership season is being somewhat overshadowed by the financial crisis at Worcester after the club was issued with a winding-up petition last month. The Worcester News understands that the club sits in around £30 million of debt and many, including local MPs, have called for the current owners, Jason Whittingham and Colin Goldring, to enter the club into administration. But the potential punishments for that could be grave, as Diamond points out. I think for all concerned, a new owner would be best, he said. But I think we have to give credit to the current ownership. If they can find an investor to assist them, or to come in to take them out, then that would be the best way. We forget that if you go into administration, you potentially get relegated. We could handle that. But the main issue would be that you lose your performance shares. These are your central funding. So you would end up being relegated for a year, hopefully coming back, but then you are probably four million behind every other club. So I think administration is an avenue, but whether it is the correct one, I will reserve judgment on that for now. Worcester supporters have also been calling for administration and generally are not happy with the current regime under Goldring and Whittingham. But Diamond admits that decision needs to be left to the people that run the business. The fans have their own opinion, as does everyone in the building. What I would say is that our two owners have done what they see fit to keep the club going. There are pros and cons for administration. I'm no professional. But administration means you get, a, get rid of some of your creditors, but you lose a lot of goodwill in the local area. A lot of suppliers and sponsors who have been here for donkey's years will lose out. So I think the owners are looking at that and are trying to navigate in uncharted waters to get the best outcome for everyone involved. Worcester do have a game of rugby to play this weekend, but it has been difficult for all involved to block the external noise. We have cocooned ourselves within the facility here at Six Ways and got on with the job in hand, added Diamond. One of the biggest worries was getting paid. That happened last Friday, 
So that has allied some of the fe- allayed some of the fears. But I would be telling lies if I said people weren't feeling anxious. And then, on September the 13th, Jim on standby. Former director O'Toole has the funds to save Warriors, but will time run out on the rugby club? Business partners Jim O'Toole and James Sandford have insisted they have the cash in order to save Worcester Warriors from their financial crisis. Former Warriors director O'Toole and Sandford, who head up Atlas Worcester Warriors Rugby Club Limited, say they have put together an offer that will ensure the club's financial security. In a statement released on their website, the pair said... We have the funds, a new executive team, an interim board of key local business people ready to start, a long-term funding package and a commercial model that will work to support the rugby operation. Warriors are due to play Exeter Chiefs at home this Sunday in round two of the Gallagher Premiership. There are fears over whether the club currently has the money to stage the contest. O'Toole and Sandford insist they are ready to jump in and provide the funds for that match and going forward, but are adamant that administration is what needs to happen first. We and the other key stakeholders remain resolute that the only viable solution to the current crisis is for the club to enter administration, the statement continues. We are willing ready and able to fund the administration process and crucially we are on standby to start transferring funds to make Sunday happen if so required. With the current owners not willing to go down that path, that decision now rests with the DCMS via their charge related to their significant loan. With this as our goal, it is pointless negotiating with the current owners as they remain focused on selling the club to address their pressing solvency issues. Our original motivation remains intact. We want to save this club. This game, versus Exeter, is more important than the last-minute championship win and the Premiership Cup win. It is now a matter of survival. An additional fact now that a subsequent article reported that Worcester Warriors owners have agreed a sale to an as yet unnamed interested party. Okay, no okay. problem. Yeah, just, okay. just give me the sign, but you're all ready to go. Right then. Friday's newspaper has an article about the Queen's visits to the city. The Queen has always been been warmly welcomed by the people of Worcester. Here we look back at the time she came to the city. And there's a picture of the Queen on her first visit. The future Queen's first official visit to Worcester to tour the Royal Worcester factory and open the Porcelain Museum was actually in 1951, minus Philip and when still Princess Elizabeth. Then Queen's visit in 1957. 
It was not until 1957 the city had its first close look at the new royal couple. April the 24th was a memorable day for more than 7,000 schoolchildren who packed Worcester County Cricket Grounds Cricket Club's New Road ground as the Queen and Prince Philip were slowly driven around the outfield, standing in the back of a maroon Land Rover. That was on the second day of a two-day official visit to the county, with the overnight stop spent on the Royal Train near Lee Court. It had arrived at Shrub Hill Station at 8.45pm the previous evening, when the royal couple were driven down Lowesmore, St Nicholas Street, the Cross and High Street, Worcester, to the floodlit Guildhall for dinner with 500 guests. The following morning, they arrived at 10am at Henwick Station and drove through the new, unnamed gates onto the cricket ground. While the band of the Royal Artillery played, the Queen inspected a Guard of Honour of the Queen's own Worcestershire Hussars, Warwick and Worcester Yeomanry, and ranks of old comrades. After the Land Rover tour of the outfield, the royal couple changed back to their official car for the drive to Malvern, where they visited the Royal Radar Establishment and Malvern College, before going over the county border into Herefordshire at British Camp. There followed royal visits by both the Queen and Prince Philip in 1980 for the Maundy Thursday service at the Cathedral and in 1989 for the 800th anniversary of the first royal charter to Worcester. The Queen's 1989 visit. In November 1989, the Queen and Prince Philip made a near four-hour visit to the city to pay tribute to the Queen's own Mercian Yeomanry, of which the Queen was Colonel-in-Chief and to unveil a plaque to open a new £350,000 workshop at the cathedral. The Royal Train arrived at Shrub Hill Station at 11.10am, where the Queen unveiled a British Rail locomotive, renamed the Queen's Own Mercian Romanry, and inspected the British Rail's travelling post office. The Royal Cavalcade then travelled down Lowesmore and City Walls Road to pass through the Edgar Tower and onto College Green, where the Queen opened the new workshops at the Cathedral. It was a £10 million restoration operation on the Cathedral. There followed a tour of the building before an invited audience of 1,500 people. Lunch was then taken in the Guildhall with 200 special guests. At 2.40pm, it was back in the Royal Car to drive down High Street, the Cross and Fourgate Street to the Shire Hall, where the Queen inspected a Guard of Honour on the forecourt, before a private tea with members, families and old comrades of the QOMY. At 3.45pm, the royal couple left Worcester to head back to London. There followed the Queen's visit in 2001. She visited again in 2001 as part of the 250-year celebrations of Worcester Porcelain and to open the new Worcester City Police Station. Her next and last visit was in 2012 as part of her Diamond Jubilee tour. 
the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh arrived in Worcester just before noon to officially open the Hive, the city's new £60 million library and history centre. Dressed in a Carl Ludwig pale pink tweed coat and dress and a matching hat from Angela Kelly, the Queen, accompanied by Prince Philip, was welcomed by a cheering crowd as she arrived in the butts. The Royal Party was greeted by the Deputy Lieutenant of Worcestershire, Angela Brinton, and several civil dignitaries, including His Royal Highness the Duke of Gloucester, who is Chancellor of the University of Worcester. Vice-Chancellor Professor David Green, Bishop of Worcester John Inge, Worcester MP Robin Walker, Mayor of Worcester Roger Berry and Councillor Adrian Hardman, the leader of Worcestershire County Council. Inside the building, the Queen enjoyed a tour of the ground floor, taking in the new children's library, while Prince Philip was taken to the third floor. The Queen, escorted by the Duke of Gloucester and Councillor Hardman, was taken to the Summer Reading Challenge, where she was introduced to Worcestershire's young poet laureate, Rowan Standish Haynes. The group then moved to the Story Pit, where Cathy Kirk, Head of Library Services, explained some of the features of the library and then viewed a Books Alive performance by children from St Clement's Primary School in St John's. She also met artists whose work is exhibited in the Hive and visited the Council's Customer Service Hub. Following their tour, Professor Green welcomed the Queen to Worcester and invited her to unveil a plaque marking the official opening of the Hive. He said, Your Majesty, today is a very special day for the people of Worcester and Worcestershire. We offer our sincerest thanks to you, ma'am, on the occasion of your visit to your faithful city during this, your jubilee year. My choice is from today's Worcester News, Thursday, September the 15th, Queen Elizabeth II and Nation Moons. In brilliant sunshine, the Queen is solemnly born to lie in state. The Queen was handed to the care of the nation for a period of lying in state after her family marched in homage behind her coffin as it was carried to Westminster Hall. A gun carriage that had borne the coffins of her mother and father carried the late monarch to Westminster Hall, a procession through the heart of the capital watched by tens of thousands who lined the route. In bright summer sunshine, funeral marches played by military bands added to the solemn mood that left some mourners weeping, while others held up their camera phones to record the historic moment. King Charles III led the royal family as they walked behind the coffin, which was draped with a royal standard and adorned with the imperial state crown and pulled on a gun carriage of the King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery. Thousands of mourners flocked to see the moving sight of the Queen departing the official residence where she spent so much of her working life, with viewing areas along the way declared full ahead of the procession starting. 
The new monarch walked in line with the Princess Royal, the Duke of York and the Earl of Wessex. Behind the king were the Queen's grandsons in a line, Peter Phillips, the Duke of Sussex and the Prince of Wales, who were followed by the late monarch's son-in-law, Vice Admiral Sir Tim Lawrence, the Duke of Gloucester, the Queen's cousin, and her nephew, the Earl of Snowdon. Royal family members in uniform saluted as they made their way past the cenotaph, while Harry bowed his head and the Duke of York turned his eyes to the right to look at the monument to the dead of the Great War. As the procession made its way to Westminster Hall, there was a gun salute from Hyde Park, with one round fired every minute. After the late Queen's coffin was placed gently on the catafalque by members of the household division, the Archbishop of Canterbury conducted a short service. Senior royals are expected to pay their own moving tribute, standing guard at some stage around the coffin, the tradition known as the Vigil of the Princes. The Queen had arrived at her former home on Tuesday evening in gloom and rain, but departed from the palace in bright sunshine. Shortly after the arrival of the coffin at Westminster Hall, US President Joe Biden said he had spoken to the King on Wednesday to offer his condolences on the death of the Queen. Here is a day-by-day -day account of what will happen next for you to follow, leading up to and including the Queen's funeral on September the 9th. September the 16th to the 18th. The King and Queen Consort are expected to travel to Wales while the laying, lying in state continues. As it continues, the heads of state will begin then to arrive for the funeral. Members of the public are invited to observe a one-minute silence at 8pm on Sunday to remember the Queen. September the 19th. There will be a national bank holiday to allow as many people as possible to watch the Queen's funeral. Lying in state will continue until 6.30am that day. Then the coffin will be taken in a grand military procession from the Palace of Westminster to Westminster Abbey for the state funeral. Senior members of the family are expected to follow behind, as they did for the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales, and for the Duke of Edinburgh. The military will line the streets and also join the procession. Heads of state, prime ministers and presidents, European royals and key figures from public life will be invited to gather in the Abbey, which can hold a congregation of 2,000. The service will be televised and a national two-minute silence is expected to be held. After the service, the coffin will be taken in procession from Westminster Abbey to Wellington Arch and then travel to Windsor.
Once there, the hearse will travel in procession to St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle via the Long Walk, after which a televised committal service will take place in St George's Chapel. Later in the evening, there will be a private interment service with senior members of the royal family. And the Queen's final resting place will be the King George VI Memorial Chapel, an annex to the main chapel, where her mother and father are buried, along with the ashes of her sister, Princess Margaret. Prince Philip's coffin will then move from the royal vault to the Memorial Chapel to join the Queen's. So now to some more general articles. I'm starting with one from Friday, September the 9th. Child shaken up by charging rhino. The mother of a seven-year-old boy said he was left petrified after two rhinos rammed their car during a visit to a safari park. The animal-themed treat was meant to be a surprise trip for the last day of the summer holidays but took a traumatic turn that left the family car written off. The rhinos caused a dent in her bonnet, damaged a headlight, tore off the bumper and left horn marks. Stacey Gormley said she desperately tried to reverse her car away after spotting two rhinos who were being chased by a safari jeep running towards her Nissan. But the rhinos rammed themselves into her car while her eldest son, Buddy Dutfield, seven, was in the front seat. Miss Gormley had taken her animal-loving children and her mother to drive through the West Midlands Safari Park and visit the wildlife on Monday. Miss Gormley, who lives in Warnden, said, Two rhinos were being chased by a safari jeep. They were running onto the tracks. I just thought... They're coming, they're coming. It made me feel sick at the time. I didn't know how I felt. My mum was shaken up. My seven-year-old was very shaken up by it. It's traumatic. It plays on the minds of little ones. Luckily, we're okay. I have not been able to sleep, though, and I keep on thinking, what if? Because it could have been a lot worse. My seven-year-old keeps talking about it and going on about what happened. They gave us four free tickets, but I don't think he'll want to go back any time soon. If we were to go again, I would feel quite nervous. But I know what time the rhinos come out, so I would like to avoid them. It wasn't a very nice thing to go through. The first rhino hit the car. I have horn marks on the car and the second one skidded into the car. The female rhino was in season, so that's why the male rhino was chasing her. The safari park is not claiming liability, which is fair enough, but the jeep was chasing the rhinos. Should an in-season rhino be left out in a family safari park? It was the last day of the holidays, so I thought I'd take them to the safari park. We go quite a lot, five or six times a year. It's a shame because it's a lovely day out. My little boys love animals. It's quite hard to keep a one-year-old and a seven-year-old occupied. A spokesperson for the West Midlands Safari Park said, As part of the safari drive-through experience, many of our animals are able to roam freely between vehicles. This includes our herd of white rhinos.
Keepers in patrol vehicles are always in close attendance to monitor all animal and vehicle movements for the safety of our guests. We do state that guests drive their own vehicles at their own risk and these terms and conditions are required to be accepted at the time of booking tickets. We offer guided minibus tours for those people who do not wish to enter the safari in their own vehicle. On September the 5th, one of our female rhinos collided with a vehicle within the African Reserve. During the incident, our team of trained keepers on patrol vehicles attempted to guide the rhinos away, but unfortunately were unable to prevent the rhino from coming into contact with the car. The guests reported there were no injuries, which is always our main priority. And following this, they continued their safari drive-through experience. After the collision, the family was offered the opportunity to carry on with the safari, but they declined. The next article is from Saturday, September the 10th. The headline is Neighbours Rush to Help Stabbed Man. A man has been left seriously hurt after a stabbing in a city street with neighbours hearing loud screams of terror. The man was taken to Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Birmingham with serious injuries after the attack in St Mark's Close Cherry Orchard. Police were carrying out door-to-door inquiries on Thursday as terrified neighbours described the man's cries for help. They rushed to help after he collapsed in the street. Leon Harris said, Basically, I was just in the house and I heard this scream. I looked out and the guy was shouting and walking around. He came down the road just across from my house and I heard him shout, I've been stabbed, I've been stabbed. He continued, He was holding on to a bin and a girl came over to help him. Then he said, I've got to lie down. And then he fell to the floor. The girl called an ambulance and then other neighbours came out and put pressure on the area he'd been stabbed. About 15 minutes later, a paramedic car arrived, then police and ambulance soon after and took him to the hospital. It was really shocking, especially for this neighbourhood. An air ambulance was called to the scene and a police guard stood alongside a cordoned off alleyway. Another neighbour said, I had just come home from work and was having tea in the back garden. This is normally a really quiet street. You don't expect to look out and see all those police. A West Midlands ambulance service spokesperson said, We were called to reports of a stabbing in St Mark's Close, Worcester at 4.10pm. An ambulance, paramedic officer, critical care paramedic and the Midlands Air Ambulance from Strensham attended. Crews treated one male on scene who had sustained serious injuries before he was conveyed by land ambulance on blue lights to hospital for further emergency care. A West Mercia police spokesperson said, A man was taken to Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Birmingham, with a serious injury. No other injuries have been reported and there is no wider risk to the public. And now the latest article in an ongoing case. Alfie Killing Case on Track The mother of Alfie Steele and her partner, accused of the nine-year-old's murder, have appeared in court for the latest hearing of the case. Carla Scott, 34, and Dirk Howell, 
39, are accused of the murder of Alfie following his death at a house in Droitwich. Scott and Howell appeared over video link at Worcester Crown Court for a pre-trial review. The case was heard in courtroom three before Worcester's most senior judge, Judge James Burbage, QC. Both deny murder and causing or allowing the death of a child in relation to Alfie Steele. Alfie Steele died at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Birmingham, on February the 18th last year, after he had been airlifted from Droitwich. Scott also faces a charge of cruelty towards Alfie, a person aged under 16, between July the 13th, 2019 and February the 18th, 2021. The court heard that, despite some issues that could have potentially delayed it, the expected six-week trial remains on track to go ahead in October. Judge Burbage said a jury would be selected on October the 7th before the trial gets underway, hearing the prosecution's opening on October the 10th. The case was prosecuted by Jennifer Josephs. Adam Weston appeared for Scott, while Howell was unrepresented as his legal representative was involved in the ongoing barrister's strike. Judge Burbage told the defendants that the trial is expected to be heard in front of High Court Judge Mrs Justice May. Both defendants were remanded in custody. Following his death, Alfie's granddad, Paul Scott, spoke of his smile that would melt butter and his inquisitive nature. He said, We are completely devastated by the loss of Alfie. He was intelligent and inquisitive and was courageous like a lion. He was a good Christian boy who was full of God. The article I've chosen next is going back in time, in fact going back 380 years to look at the Civil War. Precious cargo was en route to city. At the start of September, King Charles I moved to Shrewsbury and prepared for what would be the first campaign of the English Civil Wars. Meanwhile, Sir John Byron was moving his precious cargo of royalist silver across England with orders to get it to Shrewsbury safely. This cargo could mean the difference between winning or losing the war before the fighting had begun. Colonel Nathaniel Fiennes was a commander of the Parliamentary Cavalry, tasked to intercept and capture the royalist wagons. His men were also acting as a screen to protect the Parliamentary Field Army, commanded by the Earl of Essex. This large army of 20,000 men was also heading into Worcestershire. On September the 16th, 1642, Sir John Byron arrived at Worcester and may have parked the wagons in the Corn Market or the Walled Cathedral Precinct. At first glance, the city walls and gates would have put Byron at ease. However, he would have soon noticed the weak and rotten gates and the crumbling old walls. 
to give some added protection to Byron's small force in Worcester, King Charles I dispatched his nephew Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Rupert commanded a small cavalry unit of a similar sign to Nathaniel Fiennes of about a thousand men. The cavalry wore tri-bar pot helmets, iron back and breastplates, and for those well-equipped, a thick leather coat and a metal bridle gauntlet. They were armed with a long sword, a pair of pistols, and in many cases a short musket known as a carbine. These troopers could cover greater distances than infantry and were perfect for the work they were doing in Worcestershire in September 1642. Whilst this manoeuvring was taking place, it became apparent to the inhabitants of Worcester that war was now on their doorstep. The sight of Byron and his men entering the city would have been a shock to many and possibly exciting to the children playing in the late summer sun on the river bank or taunting a drunkard locked in the stocks or pillory on the corn market. We know people were beginning to suffer at the hands of soldiers in Worcestershire at this time too. William Stevens of Broadway was one man who had his home plundered and his hayrick set on fire. Hay that had recently been harvested to feed his livestock through the winter. By September the 20th, 1642, Byron was sat in the centre of Worcester and resting before moving north. Fines and his Parliament cavalry were scouting along the lanes and searching the horizon for the Royalist convoy. Meanwhile, Rupert was trotting towards Worcester to link up with Byron. We know both sides were unaware of the other and one of the main concerns for Edward Solly, the mayor, was to plan the work on the city defences and hopefully get rid of this occupying royalist force as soon as possible. It's only when you look at all the available sources from the time, including diary accounts and personal letters, that you realise that Worcester is not quite the faithful city we are led to believe. Everyone knew what war would bring and for a prosperous city supporting any side would be ruinous. In the run-up to the 380th anniversary of the Battle of Poet Bridge, Discover History will be running this series of articles to set the scene of those important events in 1642. Discover History is an award-winning education and historical performance company based in Worcester and founders of an annual commemoration of the English civil wars in the city. For further details on the company, please visit their website www.discover-history.co.uk or follow them on all social media platforms. The next article is headed Arresting Officer Dismissed as Scum. A screaming woman accused of kicking a police officer in the groin called him scum as he tried to arrest and handcuff her, a video showed. Laura Jeans denies assaulting an emergency worker, PC Nick Garth, at her home in London Road, Worcester, after he tried to arrest her. As previously reported, the officer had arrived at her home on January the 17th at around 11.25am after police received a report the 32-year-old defendant had assaulted a woman. 
Jeans claimed the woman had stolen property from her room. PC Garth, who gave evidence from the witness box, said he arrived to find the defendant throwing the woman's property out of the house. PC Garth's body-worn video footage from the incident was played to a jury on her ongoing trial at Worcester Crown Court on Tuesday. We've previously reported how the officer attempted to apply handcuffs after Jeans told him to leave the house. During the ensuing struggle, the officer said he was kicked in the groin several times and Jeans made a gouging motion towards his face. At one stage, Jeans also had a wooden baton in her hand, which the defence said was the spindle from a fragile banister. Jeans said she did not swing the baton at the officer and he accepted this in his evidence. PC Garth, who is six foot six inches, accepted punching the five foot one inch defendant in the face, causing her head to strike a clothes error, but told a jury he did so without using full force. In the video, Jeans can be heard saying to the saying the woman she was reported for assaulting had been financially abusing me for the time I've known her and had been in my bedroom stealing my things. Jeans tells the officer she kicked her out in a dressing gown. The defendant could be heard saying it was domestic violence and domestic abuse, but PC Garth challenged this as the two women were not in a relationship. I have asked a question and you have sworn at me, PC Garth says to her. When he asks what has been stolen, Jeans says, none of your business, to be honest. At one stage, she says, I would like you to leave my house now. At this point, the officer tells her he is arresting her on suspicion of assault and attempts to handcuff her. During the struggle, she can be heard to swear and shout, saying, are you kidding me? Jeans also tells the officer she has had recent breast surgery and shouts, get off me and leave me alone. She can be heard using an offensive term and calls him scum. You hit me in the face, she says to PC Garth. Video footage recorded on a mobile phone was also played, in which Jeans could be heard saying, you're scaring my dog. One female witness can be heard saying, don't hit her like that, mate. And the trial continues. The next story is more uplifting. Its headline is, A Disabled Man Cycles for Charity. A disabled man cycled 623 miles and raised over £500 for a charity that helps young people and their families find the strength to face whatever cancer throws at them. Christoire Duégenan, who goes by the name of Swifty, frequently does charity bike rides to raise money for different charities, despite suffering from Helicobacter pylori, 
Mr. Dwejanan cycled from Worcester to Stockport from Tuesday, August the 23rd to Saturday, August the 27th and raised £540 for Young Lives versus Cancer. He left his house in Warnden Villages on Tuesday at 7am and made his way through Kidderminster, Wolverhampton, Stafford, Macclesfield and Hazel Grove before finishing in Stockport. He said the journey was quite difficult due to his disabilities, but he ended up exceeding his target and cycling 623 miles. Mr Dwejanan said, It was really hard and I did 160 miles in one day. It was a lot of miles. I have a dropped foot and it can become really difficult sometimes. But this isn't the first time Mr Dwejanan has cycled to raise money for charity. In December, he cycled 94 miles to raise money for Acorns Children's Hospice. The 55-year-old said, I wanted to do some things for disabled children. They're not well funded. I spoke to quite a few, but some of them really weren't up for it, which was surprising. We had a long chat with Cerebra and they have been really good. They shared the cycle on Facebook and Twitter. I am disabled myself. I smashed one of my legs in a motorcycling accident. So for me, this is a massive achievement. It means that my right leg is longer than my left and my foot drags along the ground as if I don't even want it. It means that I destroy every bit of footwear in weeks. Sometimes my leg locks up for 10 to 15 minutes and it has happened while I've been training before and I've come off my bike. Young Lives vs Cancer is the UK's lead, leading cancer charity for children, young people and their families. Its care teams provide specialist support across the UK. Young Lives vs Cancer supports people from diagnosis onwards and aims to help the whole family deal with the impact of cancer and its treatment, life after treatment and in some cases bereavement. The charity also undertakes research into the impact of cancer on children and young people. Now two articles published side by side because they both approach the subjects of mental health, grief and how to help children cope with such news. First of all, a children's book to help with grief. A father of two from Droitwich has written a book to bring comfort to those worried about someone they love dying or may have experienced the death of someone close. Cuddles Are Forever is a children's picture book by Justin Bowen and based on a story he wrote for his young children after their mum sadly died of breast cancer in 2019. My children, Brennan and Seren, were aged five and seven when their mum, Helga, died, Justin explained. To help them in their grief, I would tell them a story about how scientists have shown that energy never dies and because every cuddle their mum gave them created heat, which is energy, they could be sure their mum would always be with them, therefore. The story brought them a lot of comfort. They liked to hear it often. Sometime later, I shared the story on Twitter and it had a very positive response. Several people said they thought it would make a great children's book. So working with illustrator Charity Russell, I created Cuddles Are Forever. 
This book was published on Amazon on September the seventh, the day before the Queen died. Justin said he didn't realize just how relevant his book would be. Many people have said how children have been impacted by the Queen's death, whether by raising anxieties about the people they love dying or triggering difficult emotions and memories for those who've experienced the death of someone important in their lives. Justin added, "I hope that my book will bring comfort to anyone affected, as although it's a story written mainly for children, I feel adults will be helped by it too." Cuddles Are Forever is Justin's third book, following on from Fighting for This Life and Be the Rainbow, and they're all available from Amazon. And now help is at hand: mental health. People struggling following the death of the Queen are being offered advice and support regarding their mental health, grief, anxiety, and how to help children cope with the news. Mind said coverage of the Queen's death may bring up a range of emotions, and it wants to offer support to anyone struggling. The charity said, for some of us, the news may bring up feelings of personal grief and loss. Some may feel that this adds more uncertainty to an already unsettling time for the nation. However, you're feeling, it's okay. It added, "You may be experiencing difficult feelings that you might not fully understand. Even when we don't know someone personally, we can still have feelings of grief for their loss. We may have felt connected to them, or their death may bring up feelings of uncertainty and change. It can also remind us of our own mortality or previous experiences of loss." The charity has a range of information on its website. At www.mind.org.uk, it also has a confidential information and support line, Mind Info Line, zero three double zero one two three double three nine three. The lines are open nine in the morning till six p.m. Monday to Friday. And Mind resources on coping on with feelings of anxiety can be held. Held on www.mind.org.uk/anxiety, and Cruise Bereavement Support has also issued advice with its helpline offering extended hours over the period of national mourning. It said people may be grieving the Queen because they feel like they knew her, she is someone they truly admired, or because the world now feels changed. Her death may also have reminded them of their own losses, and cruise bereavement support can be accessed at www.cruise.org.uk/grief-for-her-majesty-the-queen, all hyphenated. Its helpline is also available zero eight zero eight eight zero eight one six. Double seven. The next article has two lovely pictures of people and dogs picnicking in a field, and the title is "Dogs Go to the Movies." Dog lovers from across Worcester gathered to break the world record for most dogs at an outdoor cinema screening. 
scores of dogs of all shapes and sizes enjoyed a screening of 101 Dalmatians and made their way into the record books. Rachel Bullock, 23, organised the record-breaking attempt on the field next to Perdiswell Leisure Centre on Bilford Road on Sunday, September the 13th. She invited hundreds of pups and managed to break the world record by just seven dogs. Miss Bullock said, I feel a little bit overwhelmed. It hasn't quite sunk in yet. I can't quite believe I pulled it off. It was a lovely day with a really chilled vibe. There were some concerns about, concerns about having so many dogs in one area, but they were all impeccably behaved. We were delighted to set a new world record. It feels like a wonderful achievement. The first time we counted, it was 103, so we were a bit concerned we wouldn't make it. Then we got to 117 and we were running out of time, so that's when we rallied around and got the extra 10. Some people turned up late and we got a few dog walkers who were passing by that we grabbed and welcomed with open arms. We did what we could to get over that 120 mark and somehow we did it. There were family and friends, dogs there. I had 12 with me from clients. I had other clients that met me there, but there was a huge collection of dogs that I didn't know. A lot of clients didn't come due to the passing of the Queen. But the Queen obviously loved her dogs and that's why I still wanted the event to go ahead. I'm sure the number would have been a lot higher but I couldn't delay it any more and the important thing is that we broke the record. Miss Bullock had a vet on hand to verify the breeds and ages of all the dogs involved so that they could qualify to be part of the record break. She added, After the pandemic, it was a nice way for people to get together and bring their dogs. Now, people are working all day and then often have plans that don't involve their dogs so it's a good way for people to come together. It all worked out in the end and I'm very proud we achieved it. Now a less illuminating item. Man denies card fraud. As they say there's a lot of it about. A man will face trial for allegedly committing fraud by using his uncle's bank card. Oliver Brighton denied fraud by false representation when the charge was put to him by the court clerk at Worcester Magistrates Court on Tuesday. Magistrates heard the 20-year-old of Chestnut Walk, Worcester, and previously of Stalls Farm Road, Roitwich, is alleged to have committed the offence on February the 22nd this year. The charge reads that Brighton allegedly made a gain for himself by making a false representation, that he was the victim, Nick Ross, his uncle, to, to withdraw £300, which was and which he knew was or might be untrue or misleading. Eleanor Pitt prosecuted the case, Julia Powell defending Brighton, who appeared on video link. Philip Newton, chairman of the magistrates, told Brighton on his three-hour tri trial will take place on November the 7th at Worcester Magistrates Court when he will be produced from custody. Magistrates made a direction that if Brighton represents himself at the trial, he will not be allowed to cross-examine his uncle during that part of proceedings. He was told to attend the next hearing of the case on October the 11th. 
a charge of stealing a bank card on February the 22nd this year, which Brighton had previously denied, was dropped by the Crown Prosecution Service. Brighton also denies charges of robbery and possession of a knife in public place, a trial date still to be set for those alleged offences. Woman admits assault on two police officers. A woman has been made to do unpaid work and been ordered to pay more than £2,000 in compensation after admitting to assaulting two police officers. Susanna Jackson had admitted criminal damage to property, two charges of assault by beating of an emergency worker, police officers PC Webb and PC Waite, and two charges of using threatening, abusive, insulting words and behaviour to cause harassment, alarm and distress. The 40-year-old appeared at Worcester Magistrates Court for sentencing on Thursday, September the 8th. Magistrates heard at a previous hearing the offences came following a dispute over Jackson's father's ashes. Sumreen Asfar, prosecuting on that occasion, said after not being let into her brother's home in Worcester, Jackson damaged the glass panel in a door using a screwdriver and also smashed the windscreen of his Ford Focus on May the 23rd this year. The prosecutor added that on arrival, Jackson had kicked out at one of the officers on the front and another on the back of her legs, causing her pain. Nick Roberts, defending Jackson, had previously asked for an adjournment of the case so that a pre-sentence report could be completed by the probation service. Mr Robert Mr Roberts had also said the central issue in the case was Jackson's bereavement following her father's death, which he said had caused his clients anxiety and depression. Magistrates handed Jackson of Lear Close, Worcester, a one-year community order, which includes the condition she must complete 12 rehabilitation activity requirement days and 150 hours of unpaid work. Jackson was given a three-year restraining order not to contact directly or indirectly victims Christopher Monk and Chelsea Roberts, as well as Caroline Monk. Jackson was also ordered to pay a total of £2,300 in compensation going to the victims and the police officers and told to pay a £95 victim surcharge. Magistrates accepted the offer that Jackson pay the total £2,395 at a rate of £20 per month. And now schools top care of environment. Staff and pupils at a Worcester primary school are celebrating after being honoured for their care of the environment. Oldbury Park Primary School, part of Central Region Schools Trust, are celebrating after being awarded the Eco School Green Flag with distinction. The Eco Schools team praised the school for working incredibly hard to make learning about ecological issues and the environment a top priority. As part of this work, the school has set up their own eco-committee. The committee is made up of representatives from every class who are voted on by their peers. They work together to make sure learning about the environment is maintained and environmentally friendly practices are adopted. 
Lee Card, the head teacher at Oldbury Park Primary School, said, "I am so pleased that our school has achieved a distinction in the Eco School Green Flag Program. It is a real testament to the dedication of our pupils and all our teaching and support staff that awareness of environmental issues is embedded into everything we do." We teach sustainability as part of our curriculum, and use our extensive playground to help nurture an understanding of the importance of wildlife and nature. We hope to continue to encourage as many pupils as possible to engage with the topic. The pupils have also been working on a project to redesign the pot- pond area in the garden to attract more wildlife, including frequently visiting ducks and planting wildflower seeds, new plants, and removing weeds. And now, our listeners, to sum up the mood of a unique week's news. I offer a quotation from the work of a sometime poet laureate, Robert Bridges. Rejoice, ye dead, where'er your spirits dwell. Rejoice that yet on earth your fame is bright, and that your name, remembered day and night, lives on the lips of those. Who loved you well? Now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. My thanks to Penny and to Alex for reading and recording, and to Carol Hartle for leading that vital admin work. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and that you'll be back for more next time. So, best wishes from me, Evelyn, and from all the team. Goodbye. Bertram, Anthony Andrews, Bert. At ninety years of age, after a life well lived, the family are sad to announce that Bert, husband of the late Audrey, passed away on the third of September, twenty twenty-two. Bert's funeral will be held at Hallow Church at eleven thirty a.m. on Tuesday, the eleventh of October. Rena Holland, Catherine, formerly of St John's, Worcester, died peacefully at her home in Scotland on the third of September, twenty twenty-two, aged ninety-seven. Those who remember her are invited to do so with a smile and a do- donation to charity. Diane Grace Brimble, Dinny. Passed away peacefully at home on the twenty-fifth of August, twenty twenty-two, aged seventy-eight years. The funeral service will be at Saint Mary and All Saints Church, Hampton Lovett, at twelve noon on Friday, the twenty-third of September, followed by cremation at Wire Forest Crematorium at one thirty p.m. Bright clothes or black attire. No flowers by request. Donations, if so desired. Beryl North, née Pugh, of Burnham-on-Sea, Somerset, formerly of Worcester, 
passed away peacefully on Thursday the 1st of September 2022, aged 96 years. The funeral service to be held on Tuesday the 20th of September 2022 in the chapel of Sedgemoor Crematorium at 2pm. Flowers welcome or donations. Kathleen Egerton peacefully passed away at home on the 31st of August 2022, aged 89 years. The funeral service will take place at St Michael and All Angels Church, Ledbury, followed by a burial in Ledbury Cemetery on Wednesday 21st of September at 11.30am. Donations, if desired, are to benefit St Michael and All Angels Church. Terence Emlyn Furlong passed away peacefully at Worcester Royal Hospital on Tuesday the 9th of August 2022, aged 80 years. Funeral service to take place on Monday the 19th of September 2022 at Hallow Church at 1pm, followed by committal at Hallow Church. The family would like donations to go to Lymphoma Action. Evelyn Ann McKelvey. It is with much sadness that we announce the passing of Evelyn on August the 23rd, 2022, aged 78. Service to take place at Worcester Crematorium, Wednesday the 21st of September at 10am. Family flowers only. Malcolm George Henry Robery, George, passed away suddenly in Worcester Royal Hospital on 22nd of August 2022, aged 90. A funeral service to celebrate his life is being held at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday the 15th of September at 12.15pm. Family flowers only, please. Faye Pamela Watkins, known as Faye, Grove Crescent, Worcester, passed away peacefully on the 30th of August at St Richard's Hospice, aged 81 years. Funeral service to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday the 16th of September, 10.45am. We request no flowers are given but if so desired, donations gratefully received to St Richard's Hospice. Ronald David Jones, Ron, passed away peacefully August the 29th, aged 91. Funeral to take place at Clane's Church, Thursday the 22nd of September at 4pm. All welcome, smart casual dress please. Family flowers only but donations if desired to St Richard's Hospice. And John Harold Roberts, retired from Heenan Coolers, sadly passed away on 22nd of August 2022 at home with his wife Carol. Funeral service to take place on Wednesday the 21st of September 2022 at St Barnabas Church at 1pm followed by a burial at Astwood Cemetery at 2pm. Family welcome all friends and family back for light refreshments at the Oak Apple Pub's Betchley Road and all flowers 
are welcome. Mm.